Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. We help business creators like you win at the game of business and marketing so you can thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and make a difference for your community, market, and audience. Please take a moment and visit our website, www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. You'll find hundreds of episodes covering a breadth and depth of topics relevant to you as a business creator and links to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. And now, here's today's episode. Let's get started. My name is Adam Homey. I am your host, and I am honored once again by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. The Business Creators Radio Show takes you into the field, to those places where you have those aha moments and mastermind meetings that can bring you closer to serving from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. Right now, as we sit here together, you may hear the rumbling sounds of a jet flying overhead. You may hear a bird chirping, the occasional car with its stereo pumping as it comes through the entrance to my community, which is just over the wall of my sumptuous balcony here in Las Vegas, the hottest city in America. Sometimes we do this from my living room. Sometimes we do this from a cafe. These are the places that you have these experiences. It's not in a soundproof studio. It's not in your office. It's when you run into things, you encounter people, and you have those mastermind-level interactions that change it all. Now, today, we are going to get into something that I know that I'm going to be very excited about once I understand it. Many of our episodes, even though we're an entrepreneurial podcast, delve into workplace culture and values and teamwork, things like that. And the reason these things are important is one of the key demographics of Business Creators Radio are entrepreneurs who are making that transition from being solopreneurial to having a leveraged organization with employees, virtual teams, the whole nine yards and a partridge in a pear tree. So as you grow your team and as you grow your organization, as you grow your brand, it's key to operationalize your values to increase your sales. What does operationalizing your values mean? Well, I'm going to struggle to pronounce that. I'm going to trip over my tongue a couple of times saying the word operationalizing. I can say anti-disestablishmentarianism and supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, but operationalizing is one that I'm probably going to stumble over a few times. So bear with me and laugh at me if you wish. To share with us today on what that means, we have Danielle Levy and She is a very interesting person. I'm going to tell you a little bit about her. She's the CEO and founder of the Boardroom League, a sought-after executive who's helped six- and seven-figure businesses expand with clarity and efficiency. And the reason she established the Boardroom League is to give other entrepreneurs a little black book of trusted industry professionals to help them implement and scale their businesses. This vision came to life when she realized that she was taking this team of experts with her from project to project and recognized that other entrepreneurs could benefit from her trusted team as well. And believe me, I have some private clients with the Business Creators Institute where they take on projects together and it's uh, almost musical chairs. Who's involved with this project? Who's involved with this project? But they all work together as a team. There's a lot you can learn about Danielle and you're about to as we bring her in. Danielle Levy, come on in. The weather's fine. Thank you for having me. It is great weather here. 
Yeah, I left I left off most of your bio because I want you to tell me about it. And uh, the reason the way we do that is I read off the official part. So impressive. I'm not sure I'm worthy to be here myself. And this is my show. But tell us in your own words a bit about your journey, what's brought you to where you are today, serving business creators from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. Uh, sure. So like you mentioned in my bio, um, I have worked in some of the most well-known um, digital consulting, um, communications consulting, design um, agencies in this area. Um, and it it was a ride like I can't even express, um, yeah. but one that lasted probably um, close to 20 years and, and really brought me to a state of burnout. And at that point, had a milestone birthday that I was getting ready to celebrate. And um, it was like the universe was conspiring against me. All the things, all of the great trips that I had planned, all of the adventures that I wanted to go on um, for one reason or another, they just fell through, um, including my travel companion. And I, I took a leap of faith and I attended an event, which I thought was just going to be, you know, again, milestone birthday, and it was just going to be big fun. And what I didn't realize was some of the biggest influencers in the online space were also at this event. Um, and none of us were there on business. And I didn't know who these people were. And had I known they were going to be there, I probably would have turned around quickly. But I I left that trip with this whole new network of people and, and people talking about, you know, this online space and being an entrepreneur and um, funnels and lead magnets and and all the things that go on. And I thought, well, this sounds really interesting, but I don't know anything about it. And um, little did I know I would get home on probably, I think it was like a Tuesday or Wednesday. Um, and I had several of those influencers asking me if I would go to work for them. And um, at that point, I was pretty naive and, and just thinking, wow, this is a great um, career shift. Um, but quickly, I, I transitioned from a, a fairly confident professional who knew how to get things done that could um, walk into the big boardroom meetings that could hang with, um, you know, the CXOs. And, and I was incredibly intimidated and out of place and insecure about all the things that um, were going on around me. And I was really fortunate um, that I had this amazing network that when I kind of led with the skills that I had, um, I had this amazing network that kind of supported me in all of the areas that I had yet to learn. Um, and that launched the rest of, um, you know, my phase two of my career. Wow, that is um, that is certainly something here, uh, and I and I'd love to just sort of dive in right now because we have a lot of things to potentially cover. And as I alluded to when I introduced you, I think that there's some moving parts that I'm going to need to understand, and I'm going to ask on behalf of my listeners as I am their voice. So the first one is is operationalizing your values. What the hell does that mean? Sure. So, you know, again, that first part of my career, I spent a lot of time in um, meeting rooms where the owners of the companies or middle management or whoever it was, we'd get into a room and we'd talk about the values of the company and we'd write them down, you know, whatever, whatever they might be. And they'd inevitably get put away in a closet or um, filed in some electronic, you know, drive system and, and forgotten about altogether. Um, and that was kind of my feeling like this was a box that companies needed to check, but I hadn't yet experienced really a company that was doing something with them. Right. Like yeah. um, I didn't really understand how they were they were playing out. And when I got into the online space, what I came to realize was those CEOs, they were able 
to verbalize and document and publish and be transparent about what their personal values were and are, we're doing much greater sales and we're having much better brand recognition because they had taken the time not only to document them, but to get the buy-in from their team who were in the front lines with their, their customers um, and were in the position to have this really amazing impact once they understood the boundaries for which they were acting, which originated from these values. Yeah. And I have been around myself. I've worked with startups. I've worked for companies before I went entrepreneurial. And um, how many times have I seen the uh, stuff about the vision stuff be some boilerplate that got committed to death? Yeah, ex exactly. And then, um, and or, then, yeah, and in today's yeah, world, we see uh, that these value statements are designed with political pandering in mind. We're, and I'm not being political about this. I'm just saying that that happens way too much. But how does that really reflect what leadership is saying? Because I, I recognize pandering when I see it. I also recognize boilerplate that have been committed to death when I see them. And what I don't feel in either of those formulas are people. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. So how do we make that transition to get the people involved? I, I think, um, you know, I do think it has to start with leadership. And I think it has to start with what, what was the reason that they've gone into business? Where are they okay. looking to make impact? How are they looking to touch individuals and to really kind of quiet their minds and saying, you know, not only am I building a business here, but I'm about to leave a legacy. What do I want that to be? And what is important to me in that? And yeah. then I think it's about bringing those ideas to the team and really talking about like, what other values do you see in me um, as a leader? And also um, how do we want to grow this company together? And then how do we, you know, once those are defined and refined, it's, how do we break down each system in our business to make sure that we have the mechanisms in place that we're truly living out these values? And when I talk, when I think about a business, I think about a business having three parts, um, much like your favorite hotel there in Las Vegas. Um, yeah. There's the front of the house, um, which is your PR, marketing, sales, all that stuff that looks um, glittery in the front of the house. There's the house, which are your core offers. And then there's the back of the house, which is what makes your business run the legal, the accounting, um, the operations, the team, the hiring. And so it's about going through each, each one of those pieces of the business and thinking about each of the core values, um, and holding each other accountable to, um, really, um, day to day living those out in the business. Yeah. I had to think about this when I created the reach system in general and the podcast reach system specifically about two years ago. And it took me a little while to actually figure out what is the real value? Why am I involved with working with entrepreneurs to launch their podcasts, their key networking, client attraction, and celebrity expert branding tool? By the way, never miss an opportunity to use your tagline. Uh, so, uh, and what was it? Was it because I like playing with gadgets? Well, yeah, actually I do. The podcast reach system is built as a model. Um, it uses the, uh, it, it was actually conceived using the um, badass brand model created by Pia Silva, who was also on this show a few years ago. Uh, and, the, and the practical idea behind it is if I'm in a situation where I need all the money, 
I can do all the work and I can, uh, and I can, you know, pay myself and uh, have that go into my personal income. Uh, when I get multiple reachers and as this thing grows, cause it's going to make big money. Uh, I'm, I'm just telling you that's happening. Uh, it's something that can be easily outsourced to a great, to a great extent to people of moderate ability without specific training. And to further that, I've given the system to three people near me uh, who I trust implicitly. And me giving the gift of the podcast reach system came with uh, an opportunity and a string attached. The string attached is that they refer business to me and they get a piece of the action off that, obviously. The opportunity is they... I gave it to them on the condition that they would build a podcast of their own using the system so they would become familiar with it so that anytime I have the opportunity to outsource even pieces of it, I could say something like, hey, I got these three reachers that are all jumping around at the same time. And uh, could you do the part where we set up the WordPress, the theme, the plugins? And, uh, and when I give you the art, can you plug it in for the syndication? You know, stuff like that, that... Uh, a generalist virtual assistant can do no sweat. And uh, so I've programmed it for something that I can keep close when I need to and expand when I want to. So that's operations. As far as values, I had to think about it. Was it playing with gadgets? Yeah, I like gadgets. I just explained that uh, yeah, in 25 sentences. Uh, do I like, um, is it uh, because I want entrepreneurs to be more effective with their networking, client attraction, celebrity expert branding for the reasons podcasts help you with that. Yeah. Is it because I myself have no freaking time for those stupid virtual coffees and I'm not going to do free strategy sessions and uh, do those hop on a Zoom and spend seven minutes getting to know each other? No, that's, yeah, it's, it's nice to not have to do that. But what really motivated me is that podcasting removes gatekeepers and gives people their voice. That's the value. That's yep. what wakes that's what wakes me up to be able to do it, even when I don't feel like doing anything. That's what pushes me through getting a getting a reach project done when it's one of the ones I've taken on myself. It's the thing that makes it makes me want it to be wildly successful for my clients and make me feel personally invested in the success success they gain from using it. It's giving people their voice. And when I articulate that, that the, the energy I get from sharing that message, it's almost like I'm holding out a magnet and just pulling people to it. I could have corporatized it, but my vision is real simple. Uh, as podcasters, we are the voice of our audience. That's it. So my question to you is, you have this thing, um, operationalizing value. So how do we get into the opera? Op, see, I told you I'd trip on it. Operationalizing of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, I mean, I got, I got the part where we, um, where we uh, have the, the people in the C-suite be able to articulate authentically what are their values and all those personal values that permeate through but how do we make it part of the day-to-day -day operations? I think that's where you're, I think that's what we're looking for here. Am I right? Yeah, yeah. You know, and I, I think it's very specific to the organization because it depends on what those values are, right? 
Um, yeah. I know in my own company, um, it's real important to me to have like personal and professional alignment, um, transparency, accountability. Um, you know, I'm an avid promoter of um, learning, right? Um, so the team, my team, just knowing those things about me, when they think about how they're doing their jobs, um, that's going to give them confidence to make the decisions that they need to, to show up as their best selves within my business. And as they, um, take care of my clients. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so what, so how does this come through standard operating procedures, uh, standards? I think it does come in, um, you know, definitely in those areas, but I think it's also an element of the culture. Um, I had an email that went out um, the other day and the the subject line was just wrong. Um, yeah. And it, it wasn't a subjective wrong. It was, there was a massive typo in it and, you know, no SOP would have fixed that situation. So it was, it was about the ownership. It was about being forward and having the conversation. How did this happen? It was about um, the recipient receiving that information in a way that that they felt like it was a very professional, well-intentioned conversation um, about how do we fix this going forward, right? So yeah. um, it is about SOPs. It is about operations. It is about, you know, making sure that we're growing teams that continue to support the vision as, as leaders get further and further removed from the day-to-day. -day. Um, and it's about weaving it through the culture. Right, right. One of the uh, one of the foundations of the reach system in general is that there are little details on the back end that the uh, that the public doesn't see, and that are usually seen only to the people performing the operations. That may seem like almost little nitpicky things, but they are the secret sauce. They're the extra ingredients that don't quite get added to the public menu. That cause podcast episodes to be seen by more human and search engine eyes um, mm -hmm. and cause people to rec to resonate with what the podcast is because of the consistency that has been established not only so that it looks like an organized podcast but also so that it's in alignment with other types of media that the target audience or the avatar is used to seeing. So it resonates with them as being something that is for them. And uh, I have seen this happen way too often that we, part of our process is whoever's going to be taking over the podcast, like editing and producing the episodes and such, even though it's the same process for everybody, basically, we filmed them a customized training video where they actually watch over my shoulder while I do all the editing, post-production, and publishing of the podcast. And then I wait and see for them to post an episode. And if they did it right, I know that they followed my instructions. If they watched the instructions for a while and then said, oh, I know this, I can finish it on my own. I know exactly where they stop watching because that's where everything gets screwed up. It's like I, I saw one uh, about two months ago and I took a look at it and I said, uh, okay, I see you posted this episode and you stopped watching my video at about the 43 minute mark. Am I right? Uh, yeah. How'd you know? Cause that's where all the errors begin. So part of what we view as operation 
operationalizing the values is creating something that through sheer repetition you get really fast at and by habitually covering these bases generates a more productive, valuable, and consistent end product. So ultimately it comes down to simplicity and having something that's first class with little to no extra effort. Right, but I think you touched on something that's really important was that you took the time to create the teaching mechanism for the person um, that needed it. And I think a lot of CEOs, um, and I don't think they do it intentionally. I think it's as, as companies just grow so quickly that they don't take the time to get that information or that style out of their heads and really work with their teams to master um, the expertise. And so I think that's kudos to you for, for doing it. Back in the day, I used to do a lot of uh, ghostwriting of emails, blog posts, social media posts, and things like that. And I had a process I worked through with my clients. And I have voiced everything from pickup artists to uh, former NFL cheerleaders who became business coaches to uh, holistic medicine practitioners. I mean, I could just go down a line here, uh, sometimes three or four of them in the same day if the projects overlapped. And there was a very simple process that. For the first 30 days, I would uh, the client would have the opportunity to review anything before it went out within a 24-hour time frame. If I did not hear from them, it went out the way I wrote it. And if they didn't like that, then they got to catch it on the back end. And after they saw the first thing that went out that didn't feel like it matched their voice, they realized, oh, he means it. Yeah, I should probably give that feedback. <laughs> after, 30, after, after 30 days, they get no review at all. So it just goes out. And the reason for that is because the goal of them having ghostwriting is that they don't have to do it. So them having to review everything is not them not doing it. It's them actually having another nitpicky operational thing that they rarely have time or energy for, which holds everything up. So I also give them another principle, which is that 95% of the time or 98% of the time, you're going to get it absolutely right. A couple times a year, there's going to be a typo in the subject line. And from a an operations and a, and a value standpoint, as long as it wasn't something so monumentally galactic that destroys the brand, and very few things really do, um, it's easier to just absorb one or two and just forward it to me and say, uh, I saw you use this phrase. This is not something I'd say. Could you please not use it again? Right. Or or something like, uh, hey, I noticed you've been saying this over and over again. Uh, could we change the wording as such and have that be the thing you repeat? Okay, sure. So how do we, you know, what's, there's, one of the things you mentioned to me in the green room is, that there's a way of analyzing your business to create this alignment. What are some of the approaches, mindsets, and steps involved with that? Yeah, you know, I think um, the most important and probably effective thing a leader can do is to really solicit communication from um, either customers or um, your team, um, because they're the ones that are feeling the impact of the business the most, and they're the ones that are going to be able to tell you um, where something isn't feeling right, where you're getting positive feedback, where there's bottlenecks in your systems. Um, they're they're your feet on the ground, um, and so I always start with commu communication is is my 
you know, number one go-to, whether that's um, direct, whether that's anonymous um, feedback, you know, however it can be solicited, I think that's a great place to start. Right, right. And how do you make people feel comfortable actually sharing what that is? I know that may be a loaded question. I think it's about, I, I think it's really understanding who you're asking um, for the information. I was involved in a conversation earlier today where we were talking about um, asking existing clients for some feedback. And the reality is, is because they're existing clients receiving services um, and they want to continue with their services, um, it was better to do some anonymous um, question asking than it was to, for example, to get on a call and do have a one-on-one -on -one conversation. So um, again, it, it's kind of thinking about who is involved and, and how can you get the best feedback. Um, I think with certain team members, um, that's another great approach, or there's, you know, the one-to-one. -one. Um, I think there's the, always the opportunity to get um, kind of folks from the sidelines involved. So maybe not a direct manager or not a direct boss. Um, I, I, again, I think the most important thing you can do is know ultimately what your um, what information you're trying to gather without shaded glasses on and also who or what is the best mechanism for retrieving that. Yeah, and I mean, that makes total logical sense to me. And then there's a matter of, to me, there's a side of that that's easier said than done because I have some experience in previous ventures being the person to attract and collate that data. And I can tell you, it's easier said than done in some cases to get folks to feel that they can be candid. People aren't necessarily stupid. Even if it's uh, being done through a third party, they may wonder, well, if I type this a certain way and they copy the responses to my boss's verbatim, even if they leave my name out of it, they're going to recognize my writing style. Or I'm going to mention something and they're going to know who's 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 saying it. Yeah, I you know, I I, I certainly don't disagree with you there, but I also think, um, you know, those are probably the folks that are not in your business, maybe for the right reasons or in it for the long haul. Um, okay. And I think that can be important feedback to get, but I also think it's really important to build businesses around relationships. And I think the people um, that you want to have working with you and for you are the ones that are going to be candid and share that kind of information. Can we teach candor, like teach people how to speak candidly in a way it's comfortable for them when they have to say things that are uncomfortable to say? And that they're concerned might cause a level of discomfort in the recipients. I I don't know that you can teach it as much as you can model it. Okay. I've had, I've had some pretty challenging conversations over the years. And I think it's about, um, you know, being aware of the conversations to be had to do any pre-educating that can be done in advance of those conversations, I think there's a timeliness and a place, um, making sure that it's it's 
a good time and that everyone has the headspace and the focus for the conversations um, that are all contributors into creating an environment um, that promotes candor. Okay. Well, uh, and what I've seen is businesses grow in scale, particularly when we move from the solopreneurial to the leveraged. And this is something that you address and something we're going to share with our audience at the end is that uh, as a business grows, it ends up with a lot of bottlenecks and friction. Now, where does that come from? Um, I, I would tend to say it comes from a lack of information generally. Okay. Um, and it's because, um, you know, either processes haven't been developed and shared or the ones that were are broken or, you know, you specifically use the word friction. Um, yeah. and I would associate the word friction with a lack of confidence, um, in whatever the thing is that that needs to get done. So to me, that says that there's an information breakdown. All right. Okay. And uh, when we have things like bottlenecks and things like that, uh, as soon as I saw the word bottleneck, I was immediately thinking of, you have processes and places where everything needs to go through some chain of command for review purposes. And then it just gets kind of stuck there. Mm -hmm. And I see that there are two issues with that. Issue number one is that if it gets stuck there, obviously nothing gets done. But the second piece of it is it actually demotivates people to do their work because sooner than later, what they're going to see for themselves is, why well, keep doing all this work and I never get to see the results? Folks, in my experience regardless of their position in an organization or their relationship with a client, like to see that the work that they're doing in some way benefits the employer, benefits the client, benefits the organization. And the only way you get to see that it happens and how it happens is to see it put to work. Then it never gets put to work because it gets stuck in this bottleneck and you have debilitation all up and down the line. Um, so I, I do agree with you. I think, um, one of the things that I focus on pretty heavily with my clients is looking at the metrics and the systems so that the bottlenecks are quickly identified. You know, it's, it's about building a business around a function and a process, not around individuals. So in my opinion, if only one person has that information, that needs to be diagnosed and dissected and um, improved immediately. Yeah, yeah. Um, I can, and another thing is, and this is in my book, Groundhog Days, an event on a business strategy. Uh, I mentioned that there are two ways to get people to actually care about deadlines. Uh, one of which I already alluded to is giving them a feeling that the work that they're doing is being put into action so that they can tangibly feel that they're making some sort of difference. And the other is creating dependencies. So think think about this. And uh, let me uh, delve into your, let me delve into your cutting room floor a little bit. How many times have you let yourself off the hook if you missed a deadline because nobody was really waiting for it anyway? Um, I, I, I'm probably the outlier there. 
If you want to claim that, that's okay. And there are some people who uh, can legitimately claim to be the outlier. But I know for a lot of folks, and I will candidly say I'm one of them, that if there's something that needs done, but me not doing it is not even going to cause a pebble ripple, and I just don't feel like it, or it's already been a long day, and I just don't feel that I'm up to it. I just won't, or it's like, okay, nobody's going to ask about this, so who cares? Or if it's something for myself, it's easy to let myself off the hook. However, what are the chances that somebody's going to do that if they know that somebody else is waiting for you to finish that so they can pick it up and do something else? Got it. And I think that's kind of where I, I personally kind of live in this, this state of fear, right? Like if there's one pebble that goes by and then there's another pebble that goes by, eventually you've got your mountain of, of sand there. Um, and someone's going to come by and ask for the pebble. And then I'm going to be scrambling to figure out which one it was or what I was supposed to do, or, you know, it, it just turns into this mountain before, before I know it. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And when I pick up, when I pick up, up from that is, where operationalizing may have either failed or been incomplete. Uh, something about the operationalizing did not bring through the communication of what actually matters to folks. Uh, I mean, let I me mean, think about it. Uh, you're, you are the leader of your business. I'm the leader of mine. We are executives, and part of our job is to be innovators. So right. I, you know, we come up with a thousand ideas and, uh, and, uh, okay, here's, here, here's a story I love to tell. Um, uh, and this, uh, and again, this is not political. It's just uh, a story. So back in the, in the early 1970s, when Donald Rumsfeld was head of the OEO, I can't remember what that stood for. I think it was office of economic opportunity. Uh, he had a, he had a secretary who, uh, did secretarial stuff, and he also had an assistant uh, who was this young protege that uh, had uh, hitched his wagon onto Rumsfeld's wagon named Dick Cheney. Now, <laughs> Rumsfeld, uh, and if you've read the Rumsfeld papers, you know this guy has like 20,000 ideas a minute, and he would constantly write things down on what in the early 1970s was a major innovation called post-it notes. That's when they first came out. Uh, somebody gave him a block of post-it notes and he got all excited. It's like, oh, every time I have an idea, I can write it down. And he would write them down, leave them on his desk. And it was the, sec- it was the secretary's job to come pick them up and act upon them. So she felt that she was being buried in a blizzard. She approached uh, Rumsfeld's aide, uh, Dick Cheney, and uh, said, you know, Rumsfeld's asking me for so much here. I don't, I don't know what to do with all this. I, I, this is more than one person can do in a week, and he wants it done by this afternoon. And some of this stuff, I, I don't think it really matters that much. And so Cheney and, me, and the secretary worked together to create, to put those post-its into two piles, one of which were things that were in alignment with what the OEO was trying to accomplish and actually needed acted on. There were parts of policies, parts of negotiations, initiatives, et cetera. And part of it were Rumsfeld's uh, brainstorms just to hold on to in case he suddenly remembered it later. And so one day, uh, Cheney gets a call in his office from the secretary and she uh, says, "Uh, Dick, I I need you to come over here. Uh, It's kind of important and it's urgent. Can you come over here right now and so cheney goes over and rumsfeld standing there and saying cheney what the hell took you so long 
And right on the secretary's desk are these two huge piles of post-it notes. And Rumsfeld looked at both of them and said, just so you both know, I know what you're doing. And then left that hanging in the air for a moment. And he said, well, that's it. Get back to work. So what do we draw from that? A couple of things. Number one, that going back to what you said, beginning of this, that getting leaders, executives to articulate their vision is very important for operationalizing because it bakes in what matters, what needs to be done. And it also illustrates that your leaders and executives, in addition to building trust with the people who support them, need to be trusted so that their people feel comfortable managing them. That's what I got out of that. Because think, think about this. Think about the uh, the uh, world of politics in Washington D.C. Boy, if somebody found out that his assistant was running him, oh, that'd be the end of his career in about two seconds. <laughs> and uh, I think, and I think, and I think, and uh, we'll get off the story and come back to the point here. There may be some of that that's ingrained in us from whatever our experiences are when we get to executive and leadership positions. That. If we're not seen as being totally on top of things all the time, that if every thought that comes out of our mind and flows through our mouths or through our, our pens and our keyboards isn't spot on, that that's going to raise competency issues. And so could that be raise competency issues in, in terms yeah. of does this executive really know what they're doing and they're afraid if other people and particularly the people who work for them and support them see that oh well they need help well does that mean they can still be counted on as a leader i i definitely i i totally appreciated um, that story i have not heard it before and i yeah. i was listening intently so thank you for sharing that um, and I have definitely um, witnessed what you have said. I think in my own career, what I've really um, put emphasis on in the leaders that I watch and trust and follow and also how I try to lead is that it's not about when that mistake is going to be had. Um it's, it's not, I'm sorry, it's not about that the mistake isn't going to be had. It's about when it's going to be had. And it's about how that mistake is handled and the response and the, the maturity and the poise and the true leadership that comes when that mistake happens. Um, yeah. And those are the leaders that I look to. And that is the type of leader that I try to be. Right, right, right. So overall, and uh, as we get close to wrapping up here, um, what, what are some of the impacts that you've seen with your work doing this with your clients and your partners of bringing all this stuff together, operationalizing your values? And overall, how does this lead to increased sales? We haven't even touched that yet. So I'm going to turn you loose. Yeah. You know, I think, um, you know, most leaders are, are in the business um, because of whatever it is that drives them, what they're so passionate about. Um, and I think, they're operating at such a high speed and they can have so much knowledge um, and limited capacity, right? Everyone has a limited capacity. And I think that many leaders don't understand how to make the adjustments 
to amplify their own messages to their teams to make sure that um, everyone across the company is kind of um, marching in the same direction um, altogether. And so I would encourage leaders that if they don't know how to do it on their own, to work with a coach or a mentor or, you know, communicate with key leaders of their team um, to say, you know, this is what I'm seeing or this is what I'm concerned about. How do we make sure to put the systems in place to make sure um, that this vision that I've created, that this standard that I've created, that the culture that I intend this company to be um, is really lived out? Yeah, yeah. So how does this get to sales? Um, it gets to sales um, because when your people know what to expect in their job, when they know how to perform their jobs at the highest level because they understand um, what that lane is, or they understand how to treat your customers, or your customers can anticipate how they're going to be treated because they know what that commitment is to those values. It, autom- it can't help but impact the bottom line um, with a really positive outcome. I've seen some negative incomes. And it's another story I tell in my book. It's actually about five pages long, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to summarize it very quickly here. Uh, this hosting company that I used to deal with, web hosting company, and I had a lot of my clients on them too. Originally, they were an amazing company. Then they got bought out and turned into sludge by some investor or something like that. And uh, they, uh, long story short, they advertised they were optimized for WordPress hosting. And then mm-hmm. every other day, their servers would crash and stall out, and then they would try and uh, and then they would try and say, "Well, that's because you have WordPress and it uh, and blah blah blah, whatever, whatever. Just fix your damn servers." And this just right. went on and on and on and on and on and on. So what I think might have happened there is that the people in tech support, because I noticed that tech support went from being amazing tech support to when they finally came on the line, like if you were live chatting, their whole message would be, what the hell do you want? And it would uh, very quickly lead to blaming the customer and then ending the chat on them. I mean, it right. just went straight to hell. Uh, and it, in the couple cases I had, it was that bad. So what, do you, so what do we think happened? I bet you that as that company grew, they fell behind on upgrading their servers. And so when the people in tech support went to management, management said, well, yeah, you know these, uh, you know these clients of ours. They do these WordPress themes and they add all these plugins and it creates server load. And then they try and blame us when they're when they're screwed up websites with all their ridiculous garbage don't work. So you got to take that with a grain of salt. Whereas the people on the front line knew, no, 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 our servers need upgraded. <laughs> and uh, after a while, when you're on the front lines. There's only so much that you're getting paid to do. I mean, we talk about quiet quitting here in this era. Yeah. Uh, but uh, that would be a great example of it. And they get to the point where they say, you know what? I've tried to tell management what's really going on here because I see it every day. But how many times am I going to get my fist bloody beating them on a brick wall? You know what? Uh, I'm not getting paid to try and convince management. I'm getting paid to try and help people through tech support as much as I can. And uh, so I'm just going to try and answer the tech support questions with the information and support I'm given. And if that's none, then I can't pass anything on. And then it can go even one step further. And when you start to see those responses uh, that basically say, you know, well, what do you want? Or 
I'm not going to help you. Well, that's that could be tech support conveying to the customers without you know being able to say because they could get fired if their chat logs are pulled. Basically saying, this company is going to hell. Run. Well, it, it is. And then the other piece of that is, has how much you know, how many times is that tech support person going to get beat up? And then the company's turnover is through the roof. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, they've lost all of that training time with that tech support person and they're yeah. having to pay for hiring and recruiting time. So um, there's costs on both sides because you've got the lost customer and you've got the lost team member. Yeah. Now that you mentioned it for years and years and years of this company, I uh, got to the point where I knew all the tech support people by name. And uh, as soon as they saw my name, uh, we had a we had a friendship. And then one by one, I noticed those names start to disappear and new names appear. And then I started to notice these new names tend to change a lot. Yeah. So yeah. it was almost like a diary of what you just described. So exactly. when you see so when you see that and you lack that oper- oper- operationalizing, see, I told you I'd trip on it, of of values uh, in such a negative way because, yeah, values were operationalized. And the values that were conveyed were, we don't care. We're not going to upgrade the servers. We're just going to take as much money as we can. And we'll just see how long they put up with us. That's a value that's been operationalized. You're right. Yeah. But But what if there was a different value operationalized, which is, yeah, we are noticing a significant uptip uptick in these servers just stalling out due to lack of, lack of bandwidth. Let's buy some new machines. Well, then now you have a value operationalized that uh, when management is told that they need new resources to deliver exceptional customer service, they're going to get it. That's going to permeate through in the quality of the care that they give. That's going to lead to higher retention. It's also going to lead to more people recommending that host to their friends because how many people have ever dealt with a web host they just couldn't get through to. Exactly. Yeah. Ever had that, ever had that happen? Many, many times. Uh-huh. See that, it, see that one I knew was on your cutting room floor. And, oh uh, my gosh, and, yes. and this, yeah, and the, and I, and I, this is why I never became a reseller or anything like that. Cause there are good hosting companies out there. There's, I've been working with this one for six years now and they've always been excellent, but I do have it in the back of my mind that if they, if they get bought out by this one certain conglomerate and some of our listeners know who I'm talking about, or if, uh, if I notice that uh, there's a major slippage, I'm not going to, I'm not going to stay and fight with them. I'm going to find somebody else that, uh, and I'm going to ask around. I'm going to say, Hey, who, who are you hosting with? And uh, what's it like? And I'm going to listen to, I'm going to listen to the feedback when I see trends of such and such hosts being uh, put up as being the best of customer support. And I'm going to move there. Yeah, no. And, you know, I always talk to my clients about, you know, the five whys of, a, you know, who your my favorite. Ideal, um, client is. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, just your example of you making this referral out, you know, you are their ideal customer, right? Because not only are you bringing you, but you're bringing all of your, your best friends that you're referring to them. So they haven't yep. just lost you. They've lost your network. I had, I had over 40 clients on this host at one point. And before I got out of web design, before I got out of web development, this is right around when that cr- and, and that crash, so to speak, happened. Uh, I was actually in a point of uh, 
shaking off some of the clients because they weren't moving with me to what I was moving into next, which was fine. And, uh, and part of it, part of what I said is, Hey, um, I know that, uh, I know that, uh, we're all moving on here, but I want to leave you in a really good place. Uh, We've had some problems with your hosting lately, as you know. Uh, can you trust me one more time as part of the exit to move you somewhere else? And uh, I got paid a lot of money to do that. So some other company got like 30 new clients because they had come along and shown me that they were on top of things and would render good services to my clients even after my clients left me. And my clients would feel that uh, I left them in a good place. And that right there is when you said, and how does this impact the bottom line right there? Yeah. It's a, a perfect example. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Cause I also have to think, cause here's what I have to think about too, is, and, the, and I did think about this is these clients, uh, I'm not doing web development. I'm not doing web design. I'm not doing web mastery stuff anymore. So they're not going to be clients of something that I'm not going to be doing, but they're statistically more likely to eventually become clients of something else I do provided I leave them feeling they were in a good place with me. Correct. Yes. Yeah. That's yeah. uh that's uh in very in very uh basic terms some of my own oper operationalizing <laughs> and how I passed that down. So this has all been fantastic. And uh I know you have a gift for our listeners. I'm going to share that now. So one of the things that Danielle and I alluded to in the course of our conversation here is we didn't say this phrase, but it's been implied and it's been the elephant in the room, blind spots, finding them, knowing that they're going to surface as you go through the process of operationalizing, as you go through the purpose process of identifying what those values are and looking at some of these bottlenecks and frictions and what have you. That's where you find the blind spots. So Danielle has put together for you something. I'm going to read off the URL. It's in our show notes. Uh, if you are on our website, it's if you go to www.theboardroomleague.com forward slash blind spot hyphen identifier. I'll say that again. www.theboardroomleague.com forward slash blind spot hyphen Identifier. It's all about identifying and preventing blind spots, obviously, and knowing that unseen weaknesses are one of the biggest challenges for entrepreneurs. And that when you start your business, you take the actions you know, you discover along the way that you may not know the most effective way to do something, and you just keep doing what you know or what you see others do. And sometimes that leads to willfully looking away from your blind spots and turning toward what you can see. So with the blue blind spot identifier, uh, among the things you get are five clear steps to uncover your blind spots, fix them, and prevent them from occurring again. And so with a glance, you'll know the exact steps to quickly and effectively take the actions you need to take. So go check that out. And with that, Daniel Levy, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been an honor and believe me in education. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. We trust you enjoyed today's episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. Check out our previous and upcoming episodes on our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. While you're there, be sure to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.